listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for spending some of your time with us today. We have plenty ahead this hour. We are going to talk about what's going on in Hong Kong, where those riots are still underway. We are going to take you south of the border to figure out what's going on in the Trump impeachment hearings. We are going to talk about cancel culture. Don Cherry back on the airwaves with the podcast. You heard about that in the news. We're going to talk more about the whole idea of cancel culture. There's been so much talk about whether or not this is a left versus right issue and i will make the point that it is not and we have an interesting discussion on that coming up plus whether or not teachers should be made an essential service it's an easy thing to say much tougher thing to do and it comes with big big costs down the line so all of you parents out there worried about a potential labor disruption in the classes before you start asking about teachers being an essential service we will talk about what the facts are but we begin at queen's park where the opposition is getting under Doug Ford's skin. Mr. Speaker, I have to tell you, that's probably one of the most disgusting comments I've ever heard down here in the House. That is Doug Ford responding to a question from the NDP today about possible lobbying over a development at Ontario Place and whether or not there was lobbying that took place at a recent dinner that Doug Ford was at. The details aren't really all that important. What is perhaps more important is this claim from the Premier of Ontario, the Premier of the most populous province in the country. People don't have to lobby Doug Ford. Mrs. Jones can call me about a pothole and I'll show up to her door. There's never been... And by the way, I'm proud to say... I. That is Doug Ford in the legislature this morning saying that if Mrs. Jones gives him a dingle, if Mrs. Jones dingles his dangle, he'll be right there at the front door. He'll just, boom, ding dong, Who, who's there? It's the Premier of Ontario, come to fix my pothole. Ford went on to say that there are two things that every single person in this province knows. Police chief was there. The police chief was there in the meeting. There's no lobbying, no nothing. I'm trying to help victims of crime. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to do. And everyone, if there's one thing, Mr. Speaker, they may agree or disagree with me. They may agree or disagree with me, but every single person in this province knows two things. Doug Ford can't be bought, and if someone calls Doug Ford to get something fixed, I'll show up to their door, I'll return their phone call, unlike the NDP that destroyed this province for the last 15 years. That is Doug Ford in the legislature saying that there are two things that everyone knows. He cannot be bought, and he will show up at your door if you call him which reminds me of a promise that Doug Ford made right on this radio program on this mighty show not long ago when he called in and guaranteed anybody who could not get legal aid, they could get legal aid by simply calling him. And it turns out that that did not actually work. If you called Doug Ford's office, you got shuffled off to another agency. But if you got a pothole, people, Doug Ford is on his way over. Let's head south of the border and check in on the latest installment of the soap opera underway in Washington, D.C. The latest 
edition of The Dumb and the Thoughtless is underway. A top national security aide who listened to U.S. President Trump's July call to the Ukraine's president called it, quote, unquote, improper. Another said it was unusual. What does this all add up to? Anything at all? Reggie Cicchini is with Global National, and he listens to this stuff so you don't have to. And he joins me on the line. Hi, Reggie. Good afternoon. How important is the testimony that is underway, and what have we heard so far? Well, I mean, look, it's important to anybody who has uh, kind of bought into this Republican narrative that the testimonies to date have been second and third hand information and can be uh, attested to hearsay. Today, we have two people that were on the phone calls with President Trump and President Zelensky who felt the requests for investigations into Joe Biden were improper. We have a uh, decorated war hero who is testifying before Congress, uh, kind of being ripped apart by Republicans. They're trying to uh, potentially question his loyalty to the U.S. because he happened to speak a couple of languages and was born overseas. Uh, This is precisely what we would expect this kind of hearing to be. But at the end of the day, Democrats are really hoping that they can uh, kind of piece together even further this, uh, you know, allegation to connect President Trump with this pressure campaign uh, in Ukraine. Has it really moved the needle at all in terms of the hearings and what is the next step in an impeachment process? I mean, it's possible it will. We'll wait till the end of the day to see what kind of day of polling is out there. But the people that are testifying right now have reputations that follow precede them. They they are not going to put their jobs on the line and come and commit perjury. Uh, we, we've seen counsel try to go after them on the Republican side to uh, tarnish what they've done in the past, or at least to tarnish the words that they have already spoken. And I think that Democrats are hoping that the people that are watching this right now are going to be able to put two and two together to see that maybe the president did something wrong and these people are, you know, putting it all out on the line uh, in order to prove that. I'm assuming you have some kind of alert on your phone for every time that POTUS takes to the Twitter machine. Has he been on Twitter today at all? I do have those push notifications on. He's also (laughs) pinned to my desktop, and he has been quiet uh, all morning long. He tweeted three hours ago about uh, the Nasdaq being up 20%, but during a break uh, in the hearing about 40 minutes ago, he pushed a tweet out that is uh, a 30-second television ad that he's bought calling Adam Schiff corrupt and saying that this entire process is a sham. Uh, Different from when he was slamming a witness that was on the stand last week. He potentially has learned his lesson and is just attacking the uh, process as a whole now. You're talking about when he was tweeting when the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine was speaking. Has he addressed that at all? Because many uh, on the Democratic side have said, well, that was potentially witness intimidation. And it was brought up again today uh, in the hearing room, uh, saying that that could have been, uh, you know, a potential impeachable offense. He has uh, avoided talking about that for the last couple of days. He's holding a cabinet meeting right now, and the pool was ushered in and was able to ask him a simple question about the hearings today. He said he's not watching it, but did say that there was a uh, somebody sitting in uniform who is Colonel Vindman right now. So he, he has an understanding as to what's happening right now, but he's choosing very carefully to not say specific words about what's uh, what's underway. Reggie Cicchini is with Global National and is watching the soap opera unfold real-time south of the border in Washington, D.C. Reggie, always great to have you on the Mighty Program. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Let's talk Metrolinks real quick and the Up Express. Do you use the Up Express at all? And I guess I'm not talking to the people out there who actually use it to go to the airport because more and more that seems to be a relatively relatively limited number. There's an exclusive in the Star today where Ben Spur reports that Metrolinx had considered 
as one possibility, raising the fares for Up Express, or perhaps even limiting the number of commuters that use it. Because Up Express, although it was designed as a sort of boutique travel from Pearson to Union for international travelers, it was brought in in time for the Pan Am Games in 2015. Then, of course, they realized, well, nobody was on the thing, so they slashed the fares. And now we have it as a kind of a commuter train. A lot of people use it that live in the West End. And what Metrolinx is saying, I spoke with Metrolinx this morning, Anne-Marie Aiken, speaking to me just before I came on the program, said that this proposal to raise fares on Up Express to try and limited the, limit the number of people on it has been discounted and put to the side. It will not happen. But it still has a problem, Metrolinx, with Up Express. Namely that at key points in the day, during the morning and during the afternoon, the Up Express is already at 130% of its capacity. And the number of people on it growing as population grows. So Metrolinx has got a problem because what does it do with that system? Well, what it wants to do is it wants to merge it with Go so it's all just one thing. Keep in mind, every time you get on the Up Express, and you may love it, and here's what Metrolinx always says, is that satisfaction, rider satisfaction is fantastic on Up Express. Yeah, well, no kidding, because we, the taxpayer, are subsidizing it to the tune of about six bucks per ride. So every time you and the wife and the kids get on Up Express to head to Pearson, the rest of us taxpayers are shelling out six bucks a person for you to be on the thing. And that is in excess of any subsidies on the Metrolinx lines anywhere else. Far more. Keep that in mind when you're on Up Express. Welcome back to the program. We're going to get to Mississauga in just a second and the move to install a replica of the Avro Arrow in Mississauga, and whether or not that is money well spent, in just a second we'll get to that, but I have vegan news. I like to keep the vegans close by so that they can judge me at all times because there's nobody more judgy than a vegan. Burger King has been sued by a vegan customer who has accused the fast food chain of contaminating its meatless Whoppers by cooking them on the same grills as its traditional meat burgers. In this proposed class action suit, Philip Williams said he bought an impossible Whopper at a Atlanta drive-thru and then realized it probably was coated in meat byproducts. <laughs> Rob is our resident vegan, who is also uh, responsible for making the show sound good. So, uh, what are your thoughts? <laughs> I don't know. Uh- I think this guy's crazy. I mean, you can't be 100% vegan. It's, You're going to, would you sue? No. Do you think that a even, fast food restaurant should have to cook the vegetarian options on a separate grill? Oh, of course. On a separate grill. Of course. That just, should happen. Well, or scrub down the one that you're using. You can, maybe you don't need a is separate grill. Is that realistic? Grill? It's a fast food place. Exactly. So, I mean, why is he, I don't understand why he's uh, so up in arms when it is a fast food Because he's a vegan. Well, he should cook his own food then if he's that worried about it, is what I'm saying. I used to be married to a vegetarian, so I know these things that, you know, the cooking on the separate grills and all of that. I understand it. Of course you do. I understand it, but it's a pain in the behind. Is it really? It really is. 
I'm I, lo- I love I'm my sorry. I love my vegan people. I love my vegetarian people. I'll just put that out there that if you're going to a fast food restaurant and you're ordering the vegetarian burger, odds are the thing is cooked on the same. They don't have a vegetarian grill. No, but you know at Licks, do you remember Licks? I do. They used to do it on a separate grill for you. And where are where's Licks now? Out of business. <laughs> Thank you. I rest my case. All right, let us go to Mississauga, where Mississauga Council has pledged $2.2 million towards building a full-size Avro Aero replica. The replica of the supersonic jet, which was originally designed and built in Malton in the 1950s, would be placed next to a restored CF-100 in Paul Coffey Park. Now, according to a city staff report, the Aero project would, quote, provide a significant landmark for Mississauga. It's going to cost over $3.6 million in total. Of the project's cost, $2.2 million would be contributed by Mississauga through special projects and municipal accommodation tax reserved fund. Natalie Hart is the general manager of the Malton BIA and joins me on the line. Hi, Natalie. Hey, Alan. How are you doing today? I'm good. Why should we spend money on a replica of a supersonic jet? Well, really and truly, it's a part about revitalizing that Malton community and that Malton area. The whole long-term plan is to be creating a flight garden there. It's steps away, literally, from Pearson International, the largest thriving airport in the entire country. Uh, And it's also a significant commercial base within this community. And those jobs pay better for our youth. So it's not just about marking our history. It's about marking our future. Um, it's a great opportunity to build on the development that's already been there. You mentioned the CF-100, but going in just at the end of this month is another BIA project. We're putting in the Malton letters, similar to the signage that Toronto City has, that'll light up, steel and glass. Uh, to Everybody's that got that now. That is the thing to do. Every city, and it seems like every city in the country wants to put up their own light-up uh, letters. That, how much <laughs> well, is that costing? From a tourism point of view, they're fantastic, Alan, because they do create that backdrop for pictures and, and it, you know, and just that sense of place, uh, which is what we're really trying to create for that community. So the idea here is to spend $3.2 million, or pardon me, $3.6 million for a Instagrammable pose shot. No, I was talking about the letters being in the Instagram. No, I understand. Post. I'm moving back. I'm the moving Avro back to Aero, the Aero. It, yeah. The Avro Arrow is a much larger project. I mean, this is a heritage moment, you know, in terms of Canada. We've had films about it. Um, there's certainly been other replicas created, although this one is the first one designed and purpose-built to be being displayed outside. And really and truly, it's about creating tourism destinations within Mississauga. When we think of Mississauga right now, you know, the pictures that we get used are condo buildings. We need to be striving to move forward in terms of having recognizable icons within the city, the sixth largest city in Canada, that represent who we are, where we've been, and where we're going. And, and, and you think that the, the, Avril, the Avril Arrow, a jet that was cancelled back in the 50s, and I understand the history of it, and I understand it was built in Malton, but why do you believe that putting a, a plane, a replica of a fighter jet, is going to actually be some kind of tourist draw or draw at all? 
Well, certainly there's been a lot of historical interest in this. I mean, as I mentioned, this has been a figure in pop culture. It still resonates within the community. It, it doesn't take you the you know, six degrees of separation to find somebody who had a very close contact to that company and to that work. And they went on to some incredible things. So it's about telling that whole story about what we can achieve as Canadians in terms of innovation when we're working together on projects. And, and that's part of what we want to do is have those conversations, have that part of place, and recognize the importance of the aviation industry within our business community, within Mississauga on a greater um, level, but within Moulton directly. It's a huge portion of our tax base in that area, and they deserve to have some recognition for the contributions that they're making to our society and our community. Have you had any feedback from taxpayers in Mississauga about how they feel about putting in for this? For the most part, um, you know, the individuals that we've been connecting with have been very positive about it. Uh, you know, there is some concern from the recent announcement, mostly due to the misunderstanding of what tax funds are being used. The funding is coming from very specific um, project monies that are set aside for tourism development and asset development um, in parks. So this isn't coming from property taxes that should be being used for roads or other purposes. These are funds that are specific to projects of this nature. So this comes from a fund that is specific, specifically designated to or improve parks. In one, yeah, in parks with the federal gas tax in terms of capital projects, and separately from the tourism funding that is the hotel tax. This isn't from taxpayers' property taxes. It's from the tourism taxes set up in order to create tourism assets and tourism activity within the city. Have you thought about any kind of a virtual reality thing here? Yeah. Or like, can kids climb into the cockpit? Or what, what do you got? They will climb into the cockpit, but we will be using virtual screens um, and virtual games to have them see as if they were. Um, it, we don't want it to be an accessible uh, plane because the maintenance costs and the liability concerns there would escalate it uh, dramatically. But it will have a component of it that is interactive on the site that you'd be able to use through both virtual realities during man times and through a phone app that you can do at other times. Will there be a gift shop? <laughs> we're not sure about that at this point. Come but that's, on. We're not, we're not turning into Disney. Come on. <laughs> I, I, think, I think this is a good idea. Put a roller coaster in there. And, and, and marketing there. We will have some of the original stone from the original Avro um, you know, installation in the original factory will be included in the space as well, just to really tie it in. All right, just imagine that my 11-year-old son was listening right now, and Mm -hmm. I'm trying to convince him now that we're going to go out and we're going to check out this Avro thing, and he's going to look at me and say, Dad, that sounds wicked boring. What do you say? I say, come out and have a look. Experience the computer thing. Keep in mind, it's right next to a hockey arena. It's also got an incredible creative park. I don't know if you've ever seen the pictures of it, shaped like a castle. There's the CF-100. Our long-term plan is to bring a Lancaster in there as well. Uh, There's going to be lots to see and do. When you were just talking about vegetarian food earlier, Malton has a mecca of different (laughs) groups that you can try. And I'd encourage you to take him for a samosa afterwards. And he'll be down. Natalie, you have earned your salary as general manager of the Malton BIA today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being on the program. Take care. Thank you. (laughs) Bye. Isn't that awesome? You can come out, you can see the airplanes, and then you can get some vegan food. It's Malton's got it all. Have a samosa. Have a samosa cooked on its own separate vegan grill, perhaps. Maybe. Possibly. I don't know. How do you feel about that? 3.6 3.6 million bucks. Now, sure, it comes from this special packet 
You know, it's, oh, it's this these dollars over here. It doesn't come for property taxes. At the end of the day, I think it is important to remember that there is only one taxpayer. So even though it's, a, well, it's over here in the special folder, we put the money over here. It's, no, it's not property tax. The money's over. Go, where'd that money come from? Well, the taxpayer, but it's over here. Welcome back. An interesting conversation about cancer culture straight ahead. But first, out of Des Moines, Iowa, a jury in Iowa has awarded a man $1.4 million because he went in for a circumcision and instead got a vasectomy. Ouch. What happened is this man, who is a 41-year-old refugee from Myanmar, went in for this circumcision and was given two consent forms that were translated into Burmese because he's not fluent in English. So he gets these two consent forms and signs them, but turns out, and here is the kicker, there is no word for vasectomy in Burmese. Nope. So went in for a circumcision, got himself a vasectomy. By the way, that's worth $1.4 million for those of you keeping count. Grapevine is the new podcast from Don Cherry, officially launched on Spotify this morning. You knew Don Cherry was not going to be gone for long. Here's a quick clip from that podcast. Just two little words just seem to set everybody off. But, hey, that's the way life is. I lived in a vicious world, and I lasted 38 years. Happy to be there for 38 years, and if I got to go, I'm glad I'm going out with my shield. That is Don Cherry on his new podcast talking about his two words, that is Cherry's defense about what he said, just two words that he got wrong and he has been canceled. That brings us to a discussion about cancel culture. What is cancel culture? Well, according to Urban Dictionary, the definition is it is a modern internet phenomenon where a person is ejected from influence or fame by questionable actions. It's caused by a critical mass of people who are quick to judge and slow to question. It is commonly caused by an accusation, whether that accusation has merit or not, it is a direct result of the ignorance of people caused by communication technologies outpacing the growth in available knowledge of a person. That is the definition of cancel culture from urban Dictionary.com. Josh Elliott is a global online journalist and joins me in studio. Hi, Josh. Hi. Cancel culture is a big deal these days. Oh, yeah. I mean, when you're looking at things that go viral, this is one of the things. It is people piling on and piping up to attack somebody who may or may not have done something that's very problematic. And it is about outrage. And we seem, as a culture, and we've talked about this on this radio program, we seem not to be able to get out of bed without a good dose of outrage to fuel our day. Well, we're becoming so polarized, right? It's not really about having conversations with the people you don't agree with. It's about shouting them down. And that's what we see, especially on social media. There's always somebody to attack. And the voices that are loudest and most controversial get amplified. Those get all the likes, they get all the retweets. So it cancel culture just blows up. That's another, it's another symptom of the culture we live in now. And is it politically left or right? Here's an interesting clip from former U.S. President Barack Obama speaking earlier this year about cancel culture. But I do get a sense sometimes now among certain young people, and this is accelerated by social media, there is this sense sometimes of the way of me making change 
is to be as judgmental as possible about other people. And that's enough. Like if I tweet or hashtag about how you didn't do something right or used the word wrong verb or then I can sit back and feel pretty good about myself because man, you see how woke I was? I called you out. <laughs> you know, that's not, that's not activism. That, that's not bringing about change. That is not activism. That is Barack Obama speaking earlier this year about cancel culture. Josh Elliott is a global online journalist. What did you make of that? It is not change. It is not activism. I think he makes a good point. And I think it really stems from this idea that it's much better, much easier and safer to be the judge than to be the criminal. You know, if you're part of the mob that's attacking somebody, you're safe. You're not the person who's under scrutiny. And so it's very easy to jump on that bandwagon because you can feel like you're part of the pack and you're safe. You're with the in crowd because you're not the person under scrutiny. And it can be on either side. Like he said, you know, you can be attacking someone for being racist, for what you see as being racist. You can attack them for so many different things. But as long as you feel like you're part of the mob, you feel a little safer in expressing your opinion that way. And it has a ripple out effect as well, because those who support someone who has been canceled often are, you know, smeared with the same brush. I will tell a quick story. I'm a huge Ryan Adams fan. Ryan Adams, a musical artist, who recently New York Times reported that he had... um, sexually harassed and had uh, inappropriate communication with an underage girl. It was quite the, uh, it was quite the, the expose. And so my fiance at the time and I, one of our favorite songs is come pick me up by Ryan Adams. And it would have been our first song at our wedding, except for this. And we thought we can't play it. We can't. And I struggle with that still today. Like we have canceled Ryan Adams right out of our lives. And it's so difficult because there's, there, this is life, you know, there are gray areas, but in this polarized environment, it's very hard to find those gray areas and live in them because you have to be either black or white. And once you cancel somebody, it's very difficult for them to come back. We've seen it with Me Too, people being accused and some trying to come back. I know Aziz Ansari has been out with his new Netflix and special. And he's been quite successful. Yeah. So he's starting to kind of claw his way back, but others are just gone. They're on another planet at this point. It's very difficult to come back from. And I think it's that gray area where we should be living, where we should be able to take all of these accusations and look at them and judge them for ourselves, what is credible and what is not, rather than just piling on like everybody else. I should mention that Ryan Adams has uh, countered those claims or has denied all of those claims of, uh, of allegations and all those claims and allegations of abuse. Josh Elliott is a Global News Online journalist. Always great to have you on the program. Thank you so much. Thanks, Alan. We are going to get an update on what's going on in Hong Kong in just one second, but I want to start this segment talking to parents uh, who are worried about upcoming potential labor disruption in classrooms, who are wondering why is it that we don't make teachers an essential service so this sort of thing does not happen. That was precisely the question that was put to the Minister of Education, Stephen Lecce, on this radio station earlier today. Yeah, you know what? I'm in honesty, like I'm not there today. I'm not sure that's on my mind. And I know, you know, you're not the first to raise it to me. And I've heard it from others. I just think the priority for me in the current posture is just getting a deal through the current uh, arrangement we have, which is by bargaining hard and in good faith. Essential services are a way to designate things that simply just cannot go on strike: firefighters, police. 
that sort of thing. There's been obviously a big push to make uh, transit workers and so that they can't shut down the uh, TTC because of labor disruptions. But keep in mind that that all comes with a pretty big price tag, folks. This is from the Ontario government website. It's called interest arbitration, which happens when you have a labor disruption with an essential service. It's a mandatory way to achieve a collective agreement for parties without the ability to strike or to lock out. So in other words, an arbitrator will decide things like wages. And right now this province is, pardon me, this province is trying to hold, yeah, yeah, all right, fine. I'm going through puberty. Fine. Uh, right now, this province is trying to hold wage increases at 1%. In fact, they've passed legislation to do precisely that. And if you make teachers an essential service, you cannot restrain their wages. An arbitrator then decides what the wages are. And looks what look what has happened with firefighters and for firefighting costs for municipalities right across this province. It's been a very difficult thing because the arbitrator doesn't take into account whether or not a municipality can pay. Just here's the arbitration award, there's the percentage, there's your deal, and away we go. Let's go to Hong Kong right now and find out what is going on in that standoff outside of university as police are continuing to surround a university. They think now that about 100 more students are still inside. Here is a senior Hong Kong policeman talking about the protesters who have now been detained. In the past day, the police arrested around 1,100 people for offenses, including taking part in riots and possession of offensive weapons. And there have been five months of often violent unrest, and the past 10 days have seen some of the most intense protests that the city has seen. Redmond Shannon is a global national reporter, joins me on the line. Hi, Redmond. Hi, Alan. What is the latest that we're seeing? We've seen some incredible visuals from outside that university. Yeah, it's absolutely remarkable stuff to see the situation on the outside and the inside of the campus there. A lot of um, journalists and uh, film crews are allowed in, although uh, we believe no no more are, are allowed in right now, but some have had access uh, over the last three days of this standoff. And you see uh, firebombs being prepared, chemicals being Uh, mixed uh, to do with, well, you can only imagine being prepared for confrontations with police. But most of the students who had gathered there uh, for the standoff have now surrendered or walked out over the past two days. Quite a number did so um, within the last uh, 12 to 24 hours. So as you said, around 100 are stuck there now. And they know that uh, at least for those who are aged 18 and over, if they give themselves up, they are likely to be arrested and charged with rioting. And for those who are over 18, that could potentially mean up to 10 years in prison if convicted and you can see how desperate they are by some of the attempts at escape uh, that uh, some of them have uh, pursued some of them abseiling off a bridge um, down into a roadway with uh, accomplices taking them away in motorbikes and then later on others going into a sewer trying to find any way out because this campus is surrounded by police that was unsuccessful they couldn't find any way through the sewer and uh, were would had to had to come out again so around 100 of them are there there really is no way out for them now and uh, you can imagine they'll all be detained sooner rather than later as the supplies of food and water inside uh, diminish redmond does this mark an escalation in tactics by hong kong authorities 
Well, it's probably not very different in their reaction to some of the other uh, confrontations that have happened over the last number of months. You know, there have been uh, flashpoints over the past five to six months of this uh, confrontation and this these protests. This certainly is one of the most uh, stark clashes between protesters and police. And remember, police say that a, a large amount, that's what they're saying, of the people who were inside the university are not students of the university. So they believe that the, the campus is being used by protesters in general. A lot of them very hardline protesters um, uh, campaigning on a, a for, you know, greater demo- democratic freedoms and uh, you know, their demands, which uh, they say have yet to be met in terms of you know, investigation into police brutality and uh, for a full voting on uh, elections in Hong Kong. So there have been uh, police flashpoints. There have been allegations against police of brutality, certainly from the protesters themselves. But uh, the protesters are certainly not holding back either. Over the past couple of months, we have seen enormous demonstrations in the streets of Hong Kong. We have also seen some concessions from the Hong Kong authorities and from the Hong Kong government. Give me a sense of the makeup of protesters right now. Is this a small faction, a student-led faction, or is it still the wide swath of population protesting that we saw in the streets a couple of months ago? Well, I think when it comes to those in Hong Kong who want to see greater uh, democratic freedoms and who are concerned perhaps about the increasing uh, influences they see it from Beijing, you have a spectrum of people. You have those on the extremes and those are the people, particularly those still inside the Polytechnic University in Hong Kong right now. But you have a you have so many more people, tens, hundreds of thousands, perhaps, who, broadly speaking, support what these protesters are doing. And police today were appealing. The, uh, in fact, the new police chief of Hong Kong police force was appointed today, Tang Ping Kung, Kung rather, and uh, he said that you know part of the issue that they face is that uh, there is an appeasement, for want of a better word, among uh, broader swathes of the population who are supporting what these protesters are doing. They may not be out on the streets being violent or with masks on, but they generally, a lot of people in Hong Kong are behind these students. But of course, the more destruction that we see on the streets of Hong Kong, you'll see many people in the city who are become becoming disillusioned with these extreme tactics. And there are those analysts who say that Beijing and perhaps the Hong Kong government, uh, they're allowing this to escalate, A, because they want to show people back in mainland China that uh, the fight for democracy is not a pleasant one. um, And uh, it's not perhaps something that uh, anybody would like to pursue but they just want to maybe perhaps paint these demonstrators in the worst light possible. When we see firebombs, when we see these, uh, uh, the, the destruction of a university campus. So it's, it's quite a game of cat and mouse, but police have not stormed this campus yet. But whether or not they do that, well, that depends how perhaps the next 24, 48 hours pan out. A tense situation currently underway in Hong Kong. Redmond Shannon is watching it for us for Global National. Thank you so much, Redmond. Thanks, Alan. Bye. We want to end this program where we began it with an odd promise and pledge from Premier Doug Ford. I'll play that for you again. People don't have to lobby Doug Ford. Mrs. Jones can call me about a pothole and I'll show up to her door. There's never been... And by the way, I'm proud to say... 
That is Doug Ford this morning in the legislature saying that Mrs. Jones, I don't know where you are, Mrs. Jones, if you're within earshot, all you got to do, Mrs. Jones, is call the premier. Talk about rich. Talk about ironic. (laughs) And he's going to show up at your door with some asphalt, and he is going to fix that because he is the premier of the most populous province in this country. How many constituents do you have overall, Premier? Mrs. Jones, your pothole problem is about to be fixed. Thank you so much for spending some time with me this hour on the Alan Carter Radio Program. We'll see you again tomorrow at noon.